1: is your number one source for all your basketball info stats news and scores get the latest odds and lines including the latest player reports for this year's pro basketball playoffs BetOnline is always your sports information headquarters this season as we have you covered for all your sports wagering needs basketball major league baseball nhl hockey right down to ufc and boxing Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to get your betting info, including live betting options and your favorite casino and card games. You can play right from your home. So, what's the call to action today? Head to the website today, or use your mobile device to get in on the action. Be sure to use our promo code Believe. That's B L E A V to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online, where the game starts. All right, folks. Well, welcome into the show. This is uh, Jeremy Evans, your host of the California Sports Lawyer Podcast. As always, I appreciate being with us and making us number one sports law podcast in the world. Today we have a very special guest with us, Robert Fountain, who is corporate counsel at the Texas Rangers Baseball Club for Major League Baseball. And a terrific individual, uh, wide range of experience, uh, which we'll get into in the show. But he was able to join us for episode 20 of season five. And uh, again, this is um, invited him in as a part of uh, a graduate sport management course that I teach at Cal State Long Beach. So thankfully, he was able to join join us. But uh, sit back and uh, enjoy. Thank you so much. Welcome in, Robert. Uh, Appreciate you being with us. Uh, So this is Robert Fountain. He is corporate counsel at the Texas Rangers Baseball Club. And uh, his background is uh, pretty extensive uh, and impressive. Uh, Graduated BYU with a a Bachelor of Arts and then went on to Stetson University College of Law to get his JD. Um, Has worked in minor league baseball. He was the deputy general counsel and associate general counsel and also a special assistant to the president for uh, about a 10 year period, a little over 10 years. Then he was associate general counsel for the United Soccer Leagues and then uh before moving over to the Texas Rangers. So um so welcome in Robert and uh happy to happy that you could join us.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Awesome. So let's start off with uh with an easy one. Um what what sort of made you choose your career path or uh did you uh did you did your career path kind
0: of choose you? So I, uh, coming out of, well, going into law school, I decided, or going into, I guess, undergrad, I decided, look, I really want to get into sports. And I didn't know how that would be, right? Would it be the agent route or or what would it be? And so as I went through undergrad as a political science major, if any of you are political, were political science majors, there's not much you can do with it after you graduate and except go to law school or get some other type of graduate degree. And so I, Started looking at uh, different options and decided, you know what? Yes, for sure, it's law school. But then I, I really wanted to go the agent route, I thought. And one of our good family friends was a gentleman named Otis Smith, who's general manager for um, the Orlando Magic. I think he was with the Warriors for a time. He had played college basketball um, at a place for my, uh, at a college that my grandmother had worked at. And so I called Otis. This was right after LeBron's coming out, like really his coming out party, right around 09. Um, and he's like, man, you don't want to go and be an agent. It's, it's a tough business. And I know you guys are obviously gonna get talked to by a sports agent coming up. He's like, it's a tough business. You want no part of it. And I was like, okay, well, let me reassess. Then, um, uh, me get a little more feel of it. And so at that point I said, you know what, I'm going to go to law school. I'm going to try and pick a place. I still want to go into sports. I've just always been a sports junkie. Um, but I do want to do law school cause I did like the reading and writing aspect. And so at that point, um, I went off to law school and I picked a law school based upon where I thought I'd have the best opportunity to get a job in sports. Um, and at that point, uh, Stetson, it was the only law school basically within the Orlando Tampa area, central Florida area. A lot of sports leagues are based there and a lot of professional sports organizations. So I thought, all right, uh, uh, the odds are in my favor if I go there and so I took a shot and went to Stetson and was able to land um, an in-house council internship with the minor league baseball home office during my two year law school and never wanted to leave like baseball was always where I was hoping to get to and once I landed that spot there was no way they were going to kick me out of there
1: I love that I love that so you, you definitely knew early on that's what you wanted to get into
0: then I did, but I will say for any of you, if you decide to go to law school or you're tr- just trying to figure out your way within sports management, the biggest thing for me was to try out as many different internships as possible. So while I got my internship after my 2L year, uh, sorry, during the start of my 2L year of law school, I interned with the U.S. Attorney's Office I in- and found out, well, I don't want to put my family into hiding because I'm doing some gang case I interned at a family law firm, was like, you know, you know, telling someone, congratulations, you're divorced. That's the best news you're delivering. Like, this is not what I want to do. Um, so family law wasn't my thing. I did workers comp. and I was like, oh, this is boring. Um, I interned with a U.S. Um, let's see, U.S. District Court judge. And I was like, I'm not smart enough for this. Like, I tried out many different things to try and figure out okay, is this baseball thing exactly what I want to do? It is sports for me. Um, so I didn't just go into sports and say, yep, this is definitely it. I made sure I crossed off the other boxes first. Um, and I, I haven't left since
1: kind of like the old, uh, the old saying of like, you know, be a good lawyer first or be good at what you do first and then, you know, specialize later or whatever. So I love that. Um, so, obviously you've been working in-house uh it's obviously a different feel than um you know running and you know being an agent or running an agency or running your own business you talked about you know how you got your start but what what are what are the experiences been for you you know working for minor league baseball working for united soccer leagues compared to working you know for a major league baseball team like the rangers
0: a lot more zeros at the Rangers than uh, at minor league baseball. A whole lot more zeros behind contracts. It's actually kind of interesting when working at minor league baseball. Um, I was at the league level, so there are some different things. Um, but I would see all the regulated transactions, which would be um, negotiated contracts that fall within. They either have a term of greater than five years, or um, certain things like concessions agreements or um, sales of ownership interests. All things that I still see at the Rangers, except an outfield sign at the minor league level might be $40,000 and an outfield sign for the Rangers is $400,000. So that's really the difference. Um, And then the parties that you're negotiating with, if you're at a minor league baseball team, you're negotiating with the local Honda dealership. Um, and they're not going to have a lot of red lines, right. To your agreement. And it's not going to be really sophisticated agreements. The minor league teams are using because none, only one of the 160, when I was there, now it's 120 minor league teams, but only one of those 120 has a general counsel or has any in-house counsel for that matter. So they kind of go, they get their template uh, done by an outside counsel. And then at that point, um, you have non-lawyers working on these contracts. And so there's not a lot of red lines back and forth. Um, you can kind of dictate things. Now, if I'm at the Rangers and I'm doing a deal with Anheuser Busch or State Farm, like they're very sophisticated parties who are going to give you heavy red lines back, and there's going to be a lot of negotiation. And you're arguing over things like indemnification and insurance and things like that. That at the minor league level, the local, you know, janitorial business just isn't going to fight over that stuff. So that's where it starts to change a lot because the money is just so much greater.
1: Yeah. No, that makes sense. Um, I, it's sort of a funny story at, on the minor league baseball side. we I had a visit one time with the, uh, I guess that's the single A team down on Lake Elsinore there for the Padres yeah, years Elsinore ago. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember hearing some of the uh, marketing ploys that the minor league teams would put into play to, you know, and how ridiculous they were, how you wouldn't be able to get away with that stuff at the major league level, but it was anything to get anybody into the ballpark.
0: <laughs> and that's, I, that, that part I do miss about minor league baseball and some of that fun has been sucked out with the different changes that have come um, where it's a lot more regulated now. Um, when I started, you know, so we're talking 2010 a lot of people had these great ideas and they were a little off the wall, but social media was a lot more developed. So a lot of times minor league baseball teams would do a superheroes night. Right. And, and, it would go under the radar of the Marvels and the DC comics of the world. Um, And then all of a sudden the Marvels and the DC comics started realizing, wait, this is getting a lot of play on social media. This is driving revenue for these teams and we have value in it. And so at that point I realized that there was an issue for our clubs and I started to develop as many theme night programs as I could to be done above the table and, and be done right. So I would reach out to a 20th century Fox and say, Hey, you know, it's the 25th anniversary of Sandlot. We would love to do some fun theme nights. Have these cast, uh, you know, the cast members out to the ballparks. But let's do it the right way and have a templated theme night agreement that clubs could sign on to, um, and everything be done above board and and done the right way. So I went to licensing, and I think this goes to if you're in sports management, if you're legal, and you're going to be in a smaller business like minor league baseball or um, any other smaller businesses, you have to look for opportunities to make money and make it palatable for both parties. And so I realized that a lot of these companies like Marvel and, uh, star Wars and, um, what are some of the other random ones? I mean, we even went to like grumpy cat and all this stuff. Like I was going to licensing shows and reaching out to companies and saying, Hey, you know, uh, Warner brothers or, um, who's the ones that makes all the, the board games, uh, Hasbro Hasbro and saying, Hey, let's do a theme night together. You get this fun theme night and it builds your brand and we get to bring people in the ballpark and make some money off of it. So it benefits both of us. Um, and so I went out and built as many of those programs as I could for the minor league baseball clubs. And I think it's turned out pretty well now, as you see their, their Marvel programs, pretty, uh, pretty extensive. I love that
1: and that work probably helped you you know later on down the road and maybe helped get you noticed too. You yes,
0: know? it it definitely did. Yeah.
1: Um so now working at the Rangers, what kind of work are you, you do you have going on there? I mean, I think maybe there's a perception that you're only working on player contracts, but I find that for the most part when we talk to in-house counsel, it's you know dealing with slip and fall cases or advertising on the walls or vendor contracts, uh, but I don't know, but you tell us, you know, like what's, what's been your experience in, in terms of the type of work that you're doing?
0: So at the Rangers, we have three attorneys, I'm essentially the number two attorney. Uh, and I would say at most major league teams, you're between one and five attorneys. Um, and so we're right there in the middle at three. And so what that means, and I, it was a three of why well, I was at minor league baseball as well. So Um, you're going to get your hands on, on everything. It's not like the commissioner's office where they might have 40 to 60 attorneys at at the commissioner's office. So with three attorneys, you're going to have to handle a little bit of everything. So certainly it's sponsorship agreements. All three attorneys are touching the sponsorship agreements. I handled minor league baseball's 2000 trademarks uh, previously when I was at minor league baseball. So I have a lot of IP uh, background. And so if there's IP related issues, I'll typically handle those at the Rangers. And then something like real estate agreements pop up a lot. We own a lot of the real estate around the ballpark, um, other stadium We own our old stadium or we operate our old stadium. And then there's different hotel developments and joint ventures in terms of like what we call Texas Live and things like that. You can see the land of the battery. Those things are all popping up. And so our general counsel, Erin Kearney, handles most of the real estate. She's got a real estate background. Uh, We also handle some litigation. I handle more DR-related or or, um, Dominican Republic-based litigation. So I'm handling all sorts of issues that pop up in the Dominican Republic that you would not think about. Um, But it's a huge part of our business. So I'm handling stuff like that. And then player contracts. I'm I'm fortunate that I'm a real big baseball guy and I do get to handle all the baseball operations stuff. So um, it's different. I would say I've done three player contracts. I mean, to think that Corey Seager signs a $325 million deal and it doesn't go through an attorney, you're like, wait, what? But it really does because they're standard uniform player contracts and you don't want the Yankees to be able to put certain incentives into their contracts that the Rangers couldn't do in, or Tampa Bay and create a, a, an advantage for one of the teams. And so they're uniform player contracts and there's not a lot that can be negotiated. There are a few addendums here and there that you can kind of mess with and tweak. Um, and so that's what I'll see. And so I did Degrom and Will Smith and a couple other ones that we've had, but otherwise you're, you're not dealing with a lot of the, the player contracts at all, um, for baseball operations, it's more like, Hey, we have this new scouting program we want to use, or we have this new weightlifting product or, uh, uh, you know, a thing for to build rotator cuff strength for players. And so you're, you're doing SAS agreements and things like that in order to help out your analytics team and get in the best equipment for your, for your club. So it's a lot of vendor type agreements.
1: Yeah, no, I love that. Um, so on the, that sort of vendor side, um what's some of the stuff that um that you're sort of coming across there I mean is it like food and beverage type things or is it beyond that
0: no I mean there's definitely here and there some uh, some vendor type contracts where you're dealing with I mean certainly facility operations is a, a big part of it right you're operating a billion dollar ballpark so you have all the facility aspects that come into it with you got to deal still with an air conditioning and a you know, rodent issue, you have to handle that kind of stuff for those vendors. But then you also have um, you know, doctors and independent contractors that you're trying to work with with team doctors and getting the proper vendors and psychologists and, and things like that set up. And then your other vendors agreements that we love to at the Rangers to try and diversify. And I think they realized during COVID that if you're just running a baseball team and something like a pandemic like COVID hits, if that is your only source of revenue, you're in big trouble. And so because we had a retractable roof and you could hold outside events in Texas, um, we started doing proms. We started doing graduations for high school and college graduations and things like that. So we have a separate business called Rev Entertainment, which handles everything non-baseball related. So you got your normal 80, what is it? 81 uh, home baseball games. You also have, all those other dates that you want to fill up and have the stadium being used. So it's doing different types of meeting space functions. It's proms, it's graduations, it's, um, college wrestling, college, baseball, college basketball, anything you can to bring in an extra dollar we want to do. Um, and we're trying to be get beyond that, even creating, you know, a, a flooring company like we have, we're doing rodeos, concerts. So I'm doing all the concert agreements for, pink or lady gaga or elton john um so it, it's anything you can do to make a dollar but do it the right way um so that's kind of the different vendor type agreements that that we'll see
1: well that that whole like con- uh, concert thing is such a, a maybe more of a recent phenomenon right because as these stadiums are being built they're built more as entertainment venues that can Absolutely. be used throughout the year right versus what like, we're just going to play baseball here correct yep
0: yeah in the cities, that's really important the city, right? They're not going to go and give you money to build a $1.2 billion stadium if you're only going to play 81 games in there. They want you drawing people to that district to, to earn taxes on that and everything else. So you have to be filling that ballpark with as many events as possible to really make it a little more palatable for the city and the, and the taxpayer. So it is those concerts, it is those college sporting events or um, you know anything, even like trade shows and things like that, that you can do on certain parts of the concourse to draw people in and then charitable events, right? We have our youth baseball Academy and things like that. You've got to be a, a big player in the community and, and giving back as well. So um, when you think of like, Oh, we're a baseball team. Yeah, we are, but there's so much more to it than that. And I'm sure most other major league clubs are, are, are similar to us.
1: Yeah, no good point. It's more than just a what's on the field. It's, it's, it's what happens off and what happens inside the stadium. I mean, it's such a big, um, you know, really a big corporation, really, yeah. you know, you got so many different tentacles going out there. So with your role sort of working in-house, you obviously have this duty to your client, uh, which is the team, you know, as the lawyer, but how do you balance that with, let's say some of the business aspects, right? Because a lot of what your role is, is to be a deal maker, to put deals together. Um, so maybe talk a little bit about maybe the differences um, in sort of working in that environment at in-house counsel where it's, you know, obviously you want to review contracts, you want to, you know, take care of things, but you also want to have the ability to be flexible.
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, it's kind of a lawyering style, I think in many ways, um, everyone's kind of got their, their different feel of it. Um, and I've always been one, I try not to over lawyer things too much. Um, sometimes maybe I'm too flexible, right. And others might look at it and say, well, that's great. Um, it's just kind of who you are mentored by. And I was mentored by someone that I think really wanted to try and get to yes and protect the the client, the club or the league as much as possible, but really try and get to yes, if you can. And So I've always been in the mindset of, all right, you know, a, a salesperson comes to you and says, this is the deal. This is what I want, and I want to start by saying yes. Let's do it, but let's protect ourselves against this, this, and this, right? I don't want to be that guy that they come to and they're like, "Oh, Robert's just going to shoot this down again," right? I don't want to be that guy. I want to get start off at yes, and then work from there. Um, I think that being an in-house counsel, you want to you want people to approach you if they have an issue or a deal and rather than signing off and asking for forgiveness later. So you want them to, you want to be approachable. And so if you're that, that no person all the time, they're not going to approach you and deals are going to get signed. That shouldn't be signed without the proper protections and things like that. So um, I've always tried to say, all right, let's, let's start with yes. Now let's think about some things that could cause us some problems. What are the worst case scenarios scenarios and then fix those things from there um, and so that's really what i try and do with the rangers a lot is if someone comes with a sponsorship agreement and they're like hey we want to as part of this promotional or the sponsorship agreement we want to throw things down from the rafters right well let's think about that for a moment you know is it going to be parachuted down what happens if parachute breaks is it going to hurt someone do are we covered do we you know, you start thinking of all the wrong things that could happen and, and the terrible things that sometimes they do happen. Um, And then you, you start to protect yourselves against those things. That's kind of, I think, you, and then the other part of it is you are protecting a team and you are having to work within certain rules, right? Major league baseball has different rules that we're expected to follow from a, from a player development standpoint. And when people start messing up and breaking those rules, you're going to have to protect the team, even though the guy down the hall may be one of your coworkers, if he took an action that was harmful to the business and could result in a fine or certain types of um, restrictions on the team, you have to make sure to protect the team first and not that individual. Um, because that that's not who who you're reporting to. You're reporting to the team, and that's who your um, who your professional relationship is with.
1: Yeah, no, really good points. I like how you broke that down. Um, maybe shifting gears a little bit on this point of sort of internet and social media. How has that sort of changed your position or duties? And what are some of the issues that uh, that you come across working with the team and internet and social media?
0: So uh, I think the far and away the biggest change that you'll start to see within professional sports right now, because there's there's major lawsuits that are happening, is the use of music and social media posts. Um uh, for a long time, teams were able to get away, I think, with or thought that they were doing things maybe the right way in terms of getting certain licenses to play music. So if you think about um this a lot of this happened, the lawsuit started before I started in 2020 in June of 21 with the Rangers. But um teams were out there, you, you know, you'd show a pitcher warming up in spring training and you'd have a song that would be playing in the background, of the song, some hype video, a hype song, and teams would put it out and oh, rah-rah, rah, let's go. And now what you're finding is that a lot of these music labels have different algorithms and things like that to scan social media. And find improper uses of their songs without the proper licensing, and so they're coming after the clubs and different other major brands, whether it's makeup brands or what, who are using things in using songs in social media without the proper protections, uh, and they filed lawsuits because it's quick, it's easy money. Um, The uh, damages are are very big, especially when you're violating copyrights, and so there are law firms who are. Going out and finding these these violations by by major companies, and then bringing it to a label and saying, "Hey, give us a cut of this, and let's go get, collect this easy money." It's a, it's another revenue stream for these um, these artists and uh, and music labels, and so that's our biggest thing right now is trying to make sure that anything we put out in social media has been cleared, um, and that even comes with you know we released our City Connect jerseys. If any of you saw those recently, right? And we come out with a great video that shows them, but then it also comes along with a a song, right, by a local Texas artist. And we need to make sure to go out to that Texas artist, negotiate a rights fee for us to be able to use the song properly within our social media posts and feel like we're fully protected now. Um, Or, you know, just going to the TikTok library, the commercial library and thinking you're protected now like TikTok's not doing their due diligence on that. And we are still getting hit with lawsuits for using stuff within the TikTok commercial library um, because you actually don't have the proper licenses. So it's going down to marketing and discussing it with them and saying, hey, I understand you have this great idea and it's a really cool video, but let's first check these boxes for these different um, social media or um, licenses or sync licenses and, and music licenses.
1: Yeah. No, good points. I mean, that's something I've heard a lot lately too, Robert, is this idea of music in venues, um, in music and social posts. It's it's a bigger issue. And it's why um, Facebook and Instagram or Meta ended up signing that deal with Universal Music, which so when people post music now, they can, you know, have a, a large catalog to pull from. But um, for any music fans, you'll notice sometimes that we try to pull a music or try to pull a song down. From there, I and mean, it won't be included, and in it's because the license isn't there. You know,
0: it's not, it's not in Universal's catalog or whatever. But And when uh, you think about even putting on um a baseball game, right, with different walk-up songs and things like that, you have to go to the performing rights organizations, the ASCAP, BMI, CSEC, GMR, and get licenses to play those songs in your ballpark, right? But then the argument that's come up is all right. Um uh let's say Corey Seager comes up to bat, right? And he hits a home run and the fireworks go off and you play a song in the in the stadium and your social media guy is taking a video of that and then post it to social media. Well does your ASCAP and BMI license that has that music playing in the background in stadium that you have a license for count as the license for what's actually being shown on social media? Do you need a separate license or is that background music ambient noise that they're hearing and you should already be covered as the league or a team? We'd argue that we've already purchased the license. We're playing it the right way. And that's just ambient noise. And we don't need an extra license versus the music labels are saying, no, no, no. Like you're putting on social media, you you need an additional license for that. Um, and so that's where the arguments are now coming up.
1: Yeah. No, good points, and and if we could shift gears a little bit, talk a little bit about um, maybe some of the labor issues and some of the antitrust issues that occur in professional sports. We won't get into you know the the sort of the 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 more difficult details, but maybe talk a little bit about uh, if you can sort of this idea of collective bargaining and what that means in the sense of professional sports, like. Obviously, you've got the players union on one side or Major League Baseball uh, Players Association, Major League Baseball on the other with the teams and the owners. Um, and talk a little bit about, uh, you know, collective bargaining agreements and sort of what that looks like. I don't know if you've had experience with those, um,
0: but uh, maybe talk a little bit about the uh, some of those relationships. So I definitely have not had an experience. Extensive amount of, of labor law experience. Um, even when I was at the home office of Minor League Baseball, we did have to deal with a um, umpire union. The the AMLU was our union that was representing um, umpires um, throughout the minor league levels. Um, obviously, my, if any of you all fi- followed Minor League Sports, the Minor League players recently unionized. Um, and then obviously at the major league side, you have the, the players and the umpires who are unionized there and have been for a long time, one of the strongest bargaining units th- there is. Um, I think really the idea of a collective bargaining agreement is that a union is there looking to protect their players or their employees, um, uh, the, the collective group, and get them the best deal that they can so that everyone is treated fairly within that group. Um, and there's strength and in, and in, in unit, in unity in numbers. And so they go and, and they gather those players or those umpires together and say, look, if we negotiate together for our rights w- against this um, employer, we are going to end up in a better situation than we were if we were all doing individual contracts um, and employment agreements. And so they go and they, they come together. And if they can, you know, stay unified and have the ability to strike and things like that, if, you, if they're not treated fairly, um, then they're going to get the best deal that they can. And so that's what you've seen with the players at, at the minor league side now are trying to get because they had many issues with um, the Fair Labor Standards Act and not being paid um, what they felt was was proper. Um, I think in many ways, um, we ended up in a, in a good place with minor league and major league baseball um coming together with this most recent um collective bargaining agreement that's being worked on between minor league um players and major league baseball who is technically the employers. Um so I think it's going to be a uh, good in, in the sense of, you know, these guys aren't really hourly people you should be paying, they should be salaried employees. Um so that's going to help us out from a recording and accounting standpoint. Um but I also think it ends up better for the players because they're going to get a pay raise out of it. So um, I think it benefits both sides um, in the end, but um, if you ever have any interest in the labor side of things, you're going to want to go to the league offices. Cause what happens is the league, the commissioner's office is going to negotiate all everything with the players union. And then they're going to just simply like today, we got the actual CBA sent to us, um, from major league baseball and says, Hey, here's, here's it, here are the things that you need to keep an eye on and make sure you follow. And it's just kind of a compliance thing that you're looking at now. Um, but all the negotiations are being done at the major league level at at the commissioner's office level. And then it might ask for a little bit of feedback here or there, but really those are the individuals who are doing the negotiating. If you're going to go to a club, you're not going to be involved in the labor, um, negotiations.
1: Yeah. No, good points um, and, and solid recap too. I think that minor league baseball issue was a big one for years. I mean, I had players that I represented, and you'd you'd see the salary differences. Clearly, there was a talent difference too, and and an exposure difference. But um, but it's sort of this idea of providing housing and providing higher pay. Uh, I think uh, made sense and it probably also went along with this whole contraction of minor league baseball
0: right so going from 120 teams to um i think what was it 60 or 40 from 160 uh, to, to 120 so yeah. that was the big thing for me and leaving minor league baseball is i one thing i you got to if you're going to work in sports and all of you obviously are having your sports you got to be willing to try new things and work on stuff that you never thought you'd touch right if you go work for a minor league team you're going to be a, a part of a smaller staff and you are going to pull tarp and you're going to wear the mascot uniform at some point uh, costume and, and do that thing. And the same thing goes for a lot of the smaller legal teams that I was a part of. So at minor league baseball, um, you know, they decide that we're going to go and do a, lob- a lot of lobbying work on Capitol Hill. And so they call me up and into the president's office and say, Hey, Robert, do you know anything about political action committees or, or PACs? As many of you've heard of them, I'm like, don't know a thing about it and they're like well here's the 104 page handbook um so i go and i, I read it and i create a, a political action committee for minor league baseball and i begin to do a lot of their lobbying work on capitol hill so i met with um you know mitch mcconnell chuck schumer nancy pelosi all these different major leaders going and negotiating on, on this minor league salary issue and, and exemption from the fair labor standards act and um, on this contraction of teams, right. When major league baseball, and minor league baseball were fighting, I was going to, um, g- Congress and saying, Hey, this is why you should support the minor league owners against major league baseball at the time. And, um, and doing things that I never thought I'd do, but you have to be flexible and adjust, um, and collect that paycheck, however you can, um, <laughs> and learn new things. And so I definitely would, say you gotta be flexible in sports and being willing to say yes, I'll do it, I'll learn it. Um give me the project and I'll do the best I can on it. Um if not you'll find yourself pigeonholed into a role that um you just won't develop enough at and make yourself more marketable in the in the long term run of your career.
1: Yeah. No good points. Um and it's like too like with the whole thing of going from like you said 160 to 120. And then I was also, I think um they reduced the rounds of the draft as well, right? Yeah, 40 to 20. 40 to 20. So I think a lot of those things probably helped to uh, secure a collective bargaining, uh, or CBA, uh, because there was less players to sort of work with, right? Um, you reduce your workforce by 25%. Right, right. So um, and if maybe a few more things. So on this sort of antitrust issue, and I'm going to get into it later, but sort of this idea of sort of uh, these statutory exemptions. I mean, one thing I think folks often might get confused about or not know about is that, you know, baseball has this sort of exemption from antitrust laws, um, you know, meaning that, um, you know, obviously they can't collude when it comes to players' salaries and things like that. But uh, they are in many ways a protected business. Um any, any sort of comments on that or sort of any experience that you've had, uh, with that sort of issue with, the uh, sort of, um, this idea of this exemption and antitrust
0: laws. So I was really fortunate. I was in my sports law class, my 2L year of law school. I want to say it was, yeah, it was 2L year of law school. And, uh, they start talking. I had like a Tuesday night class, they start talking about this antitrust issue and the Curt Flood Act and all this stuff. And at the time, also, I was just starting my internship with minor league baseball. And I walk in um, to a training that we used to have at the minor league baseball home office called um, minor league baseball university, where they kind of just walk you through all the different departments. And they'd walk through anyone who is a general manager, new owner within the last three years, they'd have to come through this program. And I sit down in there and they start covering anti trust. Um, and it was done by Stan Brand and George Yund, who uh, Stan Brand, it was vice president of minor league baseball, formerly general counsel to the house of representatives. Um, and George Yund, who was our main outside counsel for Frost Brown Todd, the law firm. And they were the two drafters of um, the Curt Flood Act. And so they were just these anti-trust experts, right? Like, and I'm sitting there, I'm like, wait a minute, I'm studying this. In law school right now, and I'm sitting here listening to the people who actually drafted it. Um, And so I never ended up getting that involved in it. I was able to learn and kind of just take in what they were doing, but I never handled anything antitrust. And it was always one of those exemptions that we never wanted to touch. Now, certainly, there's always the threat that Congress is going to come in and take baseball's antitrust exemption. And they've actually, you know, turn their nose at it a couple of times and and things like that. So I I would definitely say I'm no antitrust expert. It is a big deal, but I think it's becoming less and less of something that baseball relies on. It still certainly applies to all the different um, organizations. When you think about relocating teams and doing things fairly. Um, But overall, I, I don't think it is, I don't know, maybe I'm speaking out of the wrong mouth, but I don't think it's as big as it used to be for baseball. Um, I think yeah. maybe the way the commissioner's office is acting now is kind of a reflection of that.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, I think, um, the only time a question ever gets brought up about antitrust is when there's delay in approving a collective bargaining, uh, bargain agreement, yep. and then Congress might, you know, threaten that they could remove the, you know, the statutory exemption or whatever. Um, and it
0: happened again, when we were dealing with the, um, with the, uh, closing up the minor league clubs, right? Some, you know, congressional member may say, Hey, well, then we're going to take your anti-trust exemption, things like that. You know, they always kind of throw it out there or something. I mean, it is very weird what baseball has. It's just a historical thing that's that's been there. It's very different than any other sports league. Um, but I, I don't know how much it's really affecting all the operations. It's it's crucial to the operation of the minor leagues and making sure that you can keep a player protected for, six or seven years or whatever, after you sign a player, because that's how the business works. Um, But overall, from a business operations stance, I think it's less important these days. Yeah, I agree.
1: I mean, look in the broadcasting space. I think it helps, but you're right. I mean, there's so many laws and rules and unions that protect either the umpires or the players uh, that, uh, you know, ultimately the the issues of the past um, really don't exist today in that way. The players are well paid. The teams make good money. Um, you know, I think if it ever were to take reverse course, you might have an issue, but it doesn't look that that doesn't look to be the case. So um, maybe talk a little bit about the sort of competitive and economic balance or parity in baseball. You know, so like the NFL has a salary cap, right? Um, uh, the NBA has something similar. A Major League Baseball does not. They have a luxury tax um, and basically a team that goes over it gets taxed. And then if it goes over for a certain amount of years, then it gets taxed at a higher percentage. Maybe talk a little bit about the importance of some of that parity uh, in baseball to make sure teams are performing well and that everybody gets draft picks and all that, uh, all that sort of uh, stuff that you deal with with the team.
0: Yeah, so I think I kind of look at the the parody and everything. I I certainly don't have to get involved. Um you'll find that the the GMs, the AGMs of sports organizations now or clubs, they know everything from a um from a collective bargaining standpoint and a um we got free agency and salary cap rules or, or anything like that when it comes to structuring contracts, right? They 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 understand those rules and what they can include and can't. Um, and the agents keep them in line with that. Um, so that doesn't come across our desk very often at all. Um, but I think from a fan standpoint, I think baseball is really unique, right? Like the the Yankees or the Mets can go out and they can spend all they want, right? But in the end, if you have someone like the Rays who are very good at analytics, um, they are going to be able to shift that competitive balance in terms of how they want to spend their resources um, and do it. And I think you know, baseball is certainly trying to protect itself from tanking and things like that. But the other thing you think about is like a lot of players were drafted. I mean, there's 40 rounds for a reason because picking out talent at the, at the minor league level and, and even when you're drafting kids out of the – out of high school or you're going out and finding these young players in the Dominican Republic or anywhere else internationally, it's a really hard thing to do. Um, and if a team says that they've got it figured out, uh, they're probably lying to you. Now, a couple of teams have shown that they're really good at it, um, but it's really about the development and your sys and your system and what kind of scouts you can put together um, and what type of analytics you can have. And I think that's what's driving the system now um, in terms of how much you want to pay. Yeah, you can always go out and get that big free agent, but you're going to be spending for it a lot. And I think the Rays are showing that if you can get really good at analytics and you can get really good at identifying talent and getting good players while they're lower um, in their years in terms of their, protection, their service years, um, you can be successful and not have anywhere of the number a, a higher number of um player payroll um and so i i was talking with our um one of our analytics guys the other day we have a, a system called Tracks, which is a 16 camera um system that's in our ballpark we have it in some other um areas like a sports lab where if you remember when you'd see video games being created they'd have all these little markers on them right they'd wear the orange suit and they'd have little balls on them right we have the same system now except they don't need uh, all those markers on them and so we can watch a player pitch and things like that so i was asking like okay so what are we using this for he's like well we can tell if a player is striding an extra two inches during their uh, start or is their arm speed you know two miles per hour slower like we're able to see that stuff and i'm like well that's really cool like So that's helpful. He's like, yeah, but the Rays are, are looking at pitch deception. Like they're three steps ahead of us in terms of what they can do. And that's changing the competitive balance of the game without changing the, the player payroll of it. And I think that's what makes baseball so cool is the, the parity within the game, because just cause you spend doesn't mean that you're going to be successful. It's in how you develop your resources. Are you going to put them into international signings? Are you going to build the, the, the academies in the DR and have more scouts down there to bring up better players or in Venezuela and things like that. Um, so there's so many things you can look at than just spending in baseball. So just because we don't have a salary cap um, doesn't mean that you um, you know, you're going to have the highest paying teams that are going to be the most successful year in year out. It's all strategy.
1: No, good points. Um, I guess close with a couple of questions. Uh, one would be any sort of stories you can share with us, Robert, maybe a lesson sort of learned an antidote, some sort of, uh, funny or entertaining story (laughs) that you could, uh, maybe where you triumphed over adversity or just something that was unexpected in your,
0: in your work? I mean, I I think back to my minor league days, right. It's just, there's so many crazy things that happen in the minor leagues um, that you're like, wait a minute, are we, are we really dealing with this? I remember um, Alex Rodriguez was doing a rehab start um, down in the Florida state league, which is a single a league. And we had a team that uh, decided, you know, they want to draw people in the ballpark. They want to do something silly. This is right after A-Rod's um, steroid scandal. And he was at a visiting ballpark. Um, so it wasn't a uh, Yankees affiliate um, who was having the home game. And they're like, oh, we're going to go out and get a bunch of juice boxes and wrap A-Rod's stats around the juice box and give them away as people come in the door. And, of course, the Yankees are calling. They find out about it, and they're calling our home office and, like, Absolutely not happening. Um, I think not long after Sandy Hook, we had a team in Tennessee who wanted to give away a handgun um, as part of a promotion, and we're like, "Our right, guys, like, we can't be serious right now. We're we're literally discussing giving away a handgun." Um, you know, people are trying to come up with ideas. And like I said, you want to be yes, but sometimes you just have to say like, no, this is a terrible idea. Um, so, you know, those things are are funny that I, I remember seeing. And then for me, that the war story for me, that it's just changed everything for me in terms of how I view Capitol Hill was just creating that minor league baseball pack, going in and dealing with Congress and, when they had that omnibus that was passed a few uh, years ago, maybe it's five years ago now, when it was the government was about to shut down because it wasn't being funded, one of the last issues that Congress was dealing with was the pay of minor league players and whether or not we would exempt them from the Fair Labor Standards Act. And you're like, wait a minute, we're holding up the passage of this omnibus bill on whether or not we can slip this into page 1800 of that 2200 page omnibus bill And that's literally the things, the horse trading that you're doing. So you're going into what we call the four corners, right? The the leader of the house and the leaders of the Senate and going to them and saying, Hey, can you slip this in for us in the back? Because nothing gets through in Congress on its own anymore, right? You got to get in with the rest of a bill. And so you tie it to something else because you have to pass a bill in its entirety. And so you're dealing with minor league minimum wage and overtime issues while trying to decide whether or not to fund the government. And so it gets slipped in and the end of that bill, I literally think it's like page eight, the save America's pastime act was like page 1800 of 2000 pages. And you're like, wow, that's how our government works now. And going into Capitol Hill and meeting with these members and seeing how many interest groups are going and talking on Capitol Hill and trying to get their attention um, on complicated issues that are really affecting people's lives. I mean, the pay of these minor league players was being affected. And, you know, I'm getting in because I'm minor league baseball and I'm a nice sexy topic to talk about, right? And your local team versus the nurses are trying to get in and they're like, no, 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 no. We don't want to talk to you right now. And you're like, well, that nurses, you know, union or whatever could have something very important, but they'd rather talk to us because we're baseball and sports. Um, so Capitol Hill's got a lot going on. I now am. I guess less cynical about why things don't get done because they are dealing with a lot of issues and you're talking about everyday ordinary people who are trying to run this country and dealing with super complicated issues and are hearing it from a lot of different places. Um, and so Congress runs a little slow and I understand now um, why after spending a lot of time on Capitol Hill.
1: Yeah, no, that's a really good breakdown. And and I tell you, Robert, I didn't know that you had that experience before but that's so imperative because politics isn't everything. <laughs> and if you're dealing with the local community, you know, national politics, but um, that's awesome that you got that experience and appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, then last point, maybe some words of wisdom you can share as to, you know, breaking into the industry. How do you, how do you get into
0: sports? What are some tips you can share? So um, if any of y'all any, you know, get my contact information. Um, Jeremy has it more than welcome to share it. Um, Our fountain at texasrangers.com. If you ever want to send me an email or, um, you know, send me an email, I can schedule a call with you and answer, you know, personal questions you may have about how to get into it. I think in sports, you certainly want to get in the door, but I always think backwards um, when I'm talking to a lot of law students or people who are wanting to get in the industry and think about, all right, what is the salary that you need to make to live comfortably um, and at the level you want right? If you decide that you need to make three hundred thousand dollars in order to live at the level you want to live, then there's only a certain amount of jobs that you can do to make that right? And then you're gonna have to pick from those. If you say, well, I can make a hundred and twenty thousand dollars, well then there's a larger number of jobs that you can do to find that. So first you got to think about, what standard of living do I need to live at? And what jobs are going to allow me to obtain that? Then I need to find jobs that are going to fit my interest level. Um, because I love going to work every day. Like I don't wake up dreading going to work. And I'm very fortunate. I'm very different than a lot of my friends from law school that are doing foreclosures and they hate life and it's miserable. Like I go on to work every day, like happy. My wife never sees me like Trudging out the door, like oh, this is gonna suck today. Like I am excited to go to work because I don't know what I'm gonna get to work on. Um, and so I'm very passionate about it. And I think it helps me. Um, but you have to find that balance, right? You also have to look at, all right, there's got to be the salary that where you want it. And then you have to look at from the lifestyle standpoint that you want. And um, if you're gonna work at a minor league team, you're gonna put in these 60 to 80 hour work weeks for lower pay. Um, and you're gonna live at the ballpark and it's to be super exciting, but it's it's a younger uh, group of employees because you can't really balance a family with that. Um, And I looked at it as being in-house counsel and I didn't want to go and work at the big law firms and make two or three times what I'm making now and work 60 hours or 80 hours a week and have all these high billable hours because I couldn't have the family that I wanted to have. You know, I have four kids, 10 and under, and that's extremely important for me to go out and coach their teams and be able to do what I want. And so I picked an in-house counsel role that would give me that flexibility to work 40, 50 hour weeks, maybe every now and then I'll put in a 60 hour week, but then some weeks I might only work 30 hours. Right. Um, And that worked for me. And I'm very upfront with my employers about where my priorities are. I think I realized, I don't know, five to seven years into my career that if I get hit by a car, like they're still going to have my job posted by the end of the week. And they're going to fill me. And so loyalty to your employer matters somewhat in doing good work. But in the end, like we saw during the pandemic, if they need to get rid of people and cut, yeah, they're going to do it. Um, and so you have to be very clear of what your priorities are. And I was that way at minor league baseball. I was with that at USL. And I've been that way with the Texas Rangers where I said, look, I will work hard. I will come in when I need to and I will get my work done. But if I need to leave at 3:30, to go and be at the ballpark by four o'clock to coach my kids' t-ball practice, like I'm gonna leave. And I'll cut back online at nine o'clock at night and finish a project if it's gotta be done. But in the end, this is what's important to me and I'll be the best employee I can be, but I'm going to be there for my family um, first. And I think if you're open and honest with your employer and say, this is what my priorities are, They'll respect it because it's also hard for them to say, Well, I don't want you to focus on your family. Like that would be pretty cold for them to say. And so it sets that groundwork. And now, if I need to leave at 4 30, there's no one like stopping me at, at the door and saying, Oh, we need you to put in an extra hour. Like it doesn't happen. Um, but I was also straightforward with it. And if you're not, then I think that's where the problems happen. All of a sudden, this person's leaving early and you're like, Wait a minute, what's going on? Um, if you lay that groundwork early, I think it'll. Uh, it'll, it'll set you up for, you know, better success overall, but you got to find something that works for the salary, works for your work-life balance. And then also that you're passionate about. Um, and if you don't try things, like I said earlier about trying different internships, it's going to be hard to kind of figure out what you like and you'll bounce around a lot. Um, and I, I just, I always am one for stability. That's why I was at Marley baseball for 10 years, I went to USL. It wasn't my thing. Eight months later, I was like, gosh, I got to get out of here. And now at the Rangers, I'm hopeful that, you know, I'll be here for a long time to come.
1: Yeah. I love that, Robert. I appreciate you sharing and and appreciate you uh, taking the time. So, uh, so thank you so much for that. No problem. All right, folks. Well, thanks again for listening in. That was Robert Fountain, corporate counsel at the Texas Rangers baseball club in major league baseball. As always, appreciate you listening in and making us number one sports law podcast in the world. This episode has been brought to you by Bet Online, and we look forward to being back with you next week. Thank you so much.